Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I am here with Dr. Kathy May Carlsa, author of Disrupting White Mindfulness, Race and Racism in the Wellbeing Industry. Disrupting White Mindfulness offers a timely commentary on the dominant narratives that shape the mindfulness industry, whiteness, post-racialism, and neoliberalism. Its positioning as apolitical, forges institutions that fit comfortably into increasingly divided societies. The race-gender profile of these institutions reveals a white, middle-class profile of decision-makers, educators, and staff that is mirrored in its audiences. Mechanisms that recycle the industry's whiteness include corporatist pedagogies, edicts of authority, disengagement with difference, and inappropriate uses of mindfulness that distance people of the global majority. A growing emergent movement focused on justice-infused mindfulness and liberatory well-being decolonizes mindfulness and decenters whiteness. Its premise in indigenous global South queer knowledges leverages difference to produce multiple solutions focused on liberation. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Carol Sa. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Of course, uh, Clayton, thank you so much for the invitation and to be able to discuss this work with you. Um, I'm I'm very grateful. So so thank you for the opportunity. So let me say about myself. I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and in that context, the lens of social justice is something very inherent in society. You know, one is seeing the signs of gross inequalities all around, and the systems and structures of apartheid are everywhere. So that that form of de jure apartheid is is kind of i suppose we'd say in your face it's group areas act um it's people being exploited and discriminated against um based largely on race but also on class and gender which which we understand is is created and manipulated by apartheid regimes and and it's interesting because this what we called in South Africa triple oppression is, of course, um, at the root of, of Kimberley Crenshaw's uh, conceptualization of intersectionality. And she acknowledges that there were many feminist critiques that came before her that allowed for this conceptualization. So, so I found through um, that, I suppose, um, orientation, that early life experience, I found it very difficult to separate politics and life and liberation and and was very aware of how our various ecosystems shape us and our thinking and our worldview. So when I entered the world of mindfulness, I 
probably naively or maybe foolishly assumed that this would be a practice that is about social liberation. And um, in the first few years of my training, I think that's what I was hearing, you know, that there was there was more emphasis on um, inequalities, on the nature of the societies that we're living in. And so it was more, um, it was easier to, to stay the course, to really immerse myself in the spaces. But, but at the same time, it was always evident um, what the nature of these spaces were, this, this white middle-class nature of, of these mindfulness spaces. And, and, and many, um, well, a significant number of authors and people engaged in mindfulness were becoming increasingly critical of the commercialized nature of, of what fast became a mindfulness industry. Um, and, and what was becoming more a an emphasis on noticing rather than on agency to change the things that must be changed. Um, so it seemed as if there was a disconnection with, with the realities of the societies in which we were living um, and, and made me increasingly curious about how we understand and navigate this world of mindfulness in the context of not only growing inequalities, but increasingly violent societies. So, so I was very interested in how we unpack and understand that, but also in being explicit about my positionality in doing this work so that it's not just assuming that, you know, I'm this neutral entity. And so I emphasize very much this orientation of being a black feminist scholar practitioner using drawing on um, Patricia Hill Collins's concept as well of being an outsider within. So even though I'm engaging in mindfulness and in the training halls of of this particular form of mindfulness, if you like, um, a great awareness that there was always this dissonance and this other awareness that was very, very much alive for me. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for giving that brief introduction and setting the scene for what we'll talk about throughout this interview. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to share about the process of creating this book? It seems like a very um, monumental work for, for me when I read it. So I was wondering, you know, like, how much time have you spent on it? You know, what was the process for this book coming about? That's actually a really good question, Clayton, and I'd have to think about that a little bit. So I um, the book is based largely, not exclusively, but largely on my research that I undertook for a PhD. And, and that research probably started in maybe 2015 or 2014, perhaps. Um, and then I completed the PhD in about 2019. Um, and then, of course, entered a phase of really wanting to use the work. So I'm very interested in praxis. You know, what does this mean 
in the field? Um, how do we actually take forward these conversations that were emerging? I mean, they they don't only come from my work. There was certainly a growing interrogation, a growing curiosity about the field. And so, so I probably started working on the book in about maybe 21. And, um, and here we are. Yes, it came out in March this year. Yes, here we are. So exciting. And I'm really grateful to be able to talk with you today about this great book, Disrupting White Mindfulness. I've been interested in the topic of whiteness in the well-being industry and mindfulness for quite a while now. And this book is just the book that I was looking for to dive into this subject. It's very engaging and intricately researched. So I appreciate all the work that went into bringing this book to the world and for us to read. Thank you so much, Clayton. I, I so appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So to start off and kind of lay a foundation for the discussion, I have what is actually a very big question, but can you give us a basic understanding of what mindfulness is? Yes, I appreciate, I do appreciate that it's a big question and and um, let me let me try to address it by saying that the concept of mindfulness that is being used in this popularized form of mindfulness in the western world has its roots in buddhism so it's a buddhist concept which is mainly um uh, you know, which arrived in the West through various forms, sometimes teachers who were coming um, from different countries in Southeast Asia to teach here. But the, the fundamental concept is, is very much enmeshed with the goal of transcending the wheel of suffering and attaining freedom from suffering. So it's it's very rooted in what to me sounds like liberation right and and it's it's translated as the direct path for the realization of this the cessation the stopping the cessation is a word that is often used this the stopping or ceasing of of dissatisfaction of of suffering and in the buddhist texts the the path that is used for this um, this path of, of freedom is is made up of of four foundations and and they all have to do with the cultivation of mindfulness of the body of sensations of the mind and of the elements of teachings that include things like how do we understand hindrances how do we understand factors of awakening. And then there's another part of this where if we look at the at the Pali and the Sanskrit word of, of the words of mindfulness, they originate from the word meaning to remember or remembering. So they actually have to do with recollection and with non-forgetfulness. Um, and what is being remembered in this context is is the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha, of course, being the symbolism of, of the possibilities of freedom, the teacher, if you like. 
the dharma being the teachings themselves you know how do we actually move from here to liberation and the sangha meaning the community that follows these teachings together so so the idea is that when we are in trouble we're able to take refuge in these three jewels sometimes called the triple gem so that so that we're able to always have a sense of being able to move forward but as things evolve we're of course learning that that mindfulness comes in multiple forms and that the practice is found in many 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 traditions um across the world so so in many in many countries in africa there would be the practice of um being with our ancestors being in community um being in silence together there are of course many ancient religions and forms of spirituality um that that in a sense practice what what seem to be what seem to represent mindfulness and in terms of the the model that um that the this popularized form of mindfulness what i've come to call white mindfulness um presents to the world john kabat-zinn's definition of of paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally is often used to among among um constituents among people being trained as what it is that we are training and so there seems to be an attachment to the words of non-judgmental or you know what does it mean in a particular way etc so yes is that is that sufficient to say for now yes definitely i appreciate you going over that contextualization of mindfulness and to continue along this thread you talk about you know it being popularized in the west and i wanted to see if you would take a few moments to describe some of the ways in which you delineate mindfulness's shifting shapes you at different points you're very precise in talking about the forces that have shaped mindfulness in the west mm-hmm. and what's um popularized it you talk about western mindfulness white mm-hmm. mindfulness secular mindfulness industrialized mindfulness and so on so would you be able to tell us a little bit more context of how mindfulness has shifted shapes as it comes to the west and becomes popularized thank you thank you again for the question clayton and and um i i can hear that you appreciate just how many um how much time and space all of these developments actually occur over so so it's it's almost like i i i'm going to choose certain uh, moments and and to to convey something of a a snapshot if you like so the processes of westernization of course take on multiple forms and and different phases as you say and in the book i really am considering two primary influences in the formation of of what i'll describe later as as white mindfulness the first occurred mainly in myanmar as as a political 
Buddhist nationalism, which was anti the colonial project of British occupation, which spanned an era from 1824 to 1948. So, so a, a figure, Lady Sayadaw, um, promoted what was known, what has become known as the laicization of meditation. And and this was opening up the monastery doors, if you like, and allowing lay people, everyday people to learn the art of meditation without the Buddhist philosophy or um, underpinning. So, so it was seen as quite revolutionary in terms of almost opening up the opportunities for freedom and liberation and the cessation of the path of suffering to everyday people, right? So we're we're seeing here quite a movement almost, a form of movement building. Um, and the second of, of these significant phases occurs in the U.S. with the rise of West, the Western Vipassana movement and and this is seeded through the formation of the Insight Meditation Society and offshoots from this original um, formation in, in Barry, Massachusetts, to other forms on um, the U.S. West Coast. I think Spirit Rock um, was, was Jack Hornfield's organization. And so we see this society developing and repeating what these teachers, these Western-born teachers, have learnt from their teachers in um, in Southeast Asia, and they're learning that we can remove the Buddhist philosophy and we can just practice this meditation component. But they go a step further. So remember, in in Myanmar, this is political. This is a political act, right? What happens in the Western context is it becomes depoliticized. And in fact, the Western Vipassana movement takes a step away. It dissociates itself from its Theravadan orientation. Lady Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, um, are, are from the Ther- Theravadan um, lineage. And so we have this these political maneuvers happening in the Western world but meditation and Buddhism are regarded almost as, as apolitical. So, so we, we also see that what's happening in the West is this process is very um, much merged with the Western process of individualization and hyper-individualization. And, and so we see that the... Um, the, the main teachers of the Vipassana movement in the Western world, and this is mainly in the US, as I've said, are interested in personal freedom, right? And so, so the, already we're seeing the shaping of a discourse and a practice which is fitting in to Western society. And I, I should say that when speaking about the book and speaking about these concepts, it can sound very polarized, you know, as if these people went along and they did that. And I, I'm hoping that we can just hold the complexity of all of this in terms of how things unfolded. So, for example, one of the people, a, a an um, U.S. Uh, monk, 
who, who also traveled to um, Southeast Asia and became ordained as a um, monk in Sri Lanka, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a well-known figure within the kind of Buddhist movement, he returns and sets up something called the Buddhist Global Relief, which is a very different formation. And so you see the possibilities of people really um, absorbing the teachings quite differently and then bringing them back. Um, so, so in the case of the insight meditation grouping of people, really with an intention of... Um, of wanting to spread these teachings that bring some possibilities of, of a notion of being able to step outside of this highly commercialized Western society, right? It's the time of the Vietnam War. There is unrest and protest. Racial capitalism is, of course, on the increase. We're seeing the very, very early stages of um, free market society. And so this is a way of stepping outside of all of these influences and, and frames. But what happens in the process is we see what, um, what becomes acts of essentialism, where there is further removing of, of what is unfortunately called the cultural baggage um, and, and a return to what these U.S. teachers are calling the, the the real Buddhism of the Buddha. So, so within this movement, we're seeing the beginnings of we're seeing essentialism, like the removal of of cultural context. We're seeing deracination, where there's a a picking, a cherry picking of certain aspects or certain teachings, and we're then seeing this repackaging, which is presented as universal. And so here we start seeing the kinds of harms in terms of um, cultural appropriation and the, the notion that, you know, the, the representation of Buddhism as, as rational and scientific and of um, what, what becomes the Americanization, it's called the Americanization of Buddhism, that, that leans into the 18th century European Enlightenment, where, where rational scientific methods are juxtaposed or are contrasted with the um the East, which which I'm sure we'll talk about, um being, you know, cultural and emotional rather than rational and scientific. And so in effect, you know, that very first phase that I mentioned. Lady Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, and um, Goenka, who, who we still see many, many, and a growing number of these 10 day Vipassana retreats. And they too, in order to promote the teachings globally, they too stripped the teachings, the Buddhist teachings of some sometimes all of the cultural roots, retained some of the philosophy and the outlook. But it's the way in which they have been able to popularize the teachings. Um, so the question, of course, becomes, is it different when the bearers and the holders of the teachings from those traditions represent that? Is it different to people from 
the States or the UK or um, somewhere in the West going off studying, bringing the teachings back and calling them universal, right? It's a question which I think is is worthwhile um, continuing to ask. But of course, what happens in the context of um, of the development of Western Buddhism then is that it's devoid of any of the political underpinnings of um, colony and empire and how access to these teachings come about in the first place. And so when mindfulness enters this fray of, of um, all the developments of Western Buddhism, it's almost formed in the wake of these developments. And, and so it becomes tainted with some of almost the automatic leaning into the scientific evidence base, um, leaning into these processes of essentialism and deracination. Um, and it repeats this individualization of this quest for freedom and, and sidesteps completely the social justice issues. And so we see within this form of, of mindfulness, and, and by the way, let me say that there were, there were harms along the way, right? So Asian communities within the U.S., um, were largely ignored, you know, with that move away from the the Theravadan lineage. Um, even though people like Funishu wrote articles called "We've been here all along," so so it's it's. I think that reckoning with the kind of harms and neglect is something that still, I presume, will unfold. But what happens then with with Western mindfulness at this stage is because of this kind of scientific bent is we have the medicalization and the pathologization of stress. So stress is now seen as, you know, these are universal teachings. Stress is a physiological phenomenon. We are, we share common humanity. We are all human together. Stress affects everybody in the same way. This practice is a one size fits all practice that will be able to meet anybody um, it, who who is experiencing any stress or disease. And of course, at this point, so so John Kabat-Zinn formed mindfulness-based stress reduction at the stress reduction clinic at UMass in 1979. It just so happens to be the same year that neoliberalism starts taking off in the US and the UK. So we're seeing the synergies of all of these ideologies and forces, and, and we're seeing forms of therapization that repeat the pattern of hyper-individualization. -individual, so, so healthcare, of course, becomes um, embroiled, you know, in the ways in which mindfulness is being rolled out in these communities. And, and the result is that when we look a little bit more closely at who the main actors are within the West, we start seeing that we're talking about the development and the evolution of a white middle-class practice that is becoming more and more commercialized, that costs a fee in order to be trained, that costs, you know, so, so there are 
I mean, we've seen this more in the last decade or two, a growing number of apps and props and mindfulness um, accoutrement, you know, that that goes with the practice. So, so yes, I'll, I'll stop there, Clayton. I've gone on for a bit long. I appreciate that overview. That was very good. And I um, am excited for the listeners to hear kind of the trajectory in which some of these forms of mindfulness has followed to get to where we're at. You mentioned the deracination of mindfulness, and that's not a neutral process, mm-hmm. um, which I'm excited to get into that line of discussion, because as this book is called Disrupting White Mindfulness, it's important to have a foundational understanding of the interventions you're making in this book about whiteness. Would you be able to explain how whiteness is not only a racial marker, but also, as you say, an invisibilized mode of social power built on living histories of oppressions, exclusions, discriminations, and vulnerabilities? Thank you so much for for quoting from the book. Um, You know, whiteness for us, it's interesting how when we hear the word whiteness, we tend to think race. And of course, whiteness, as as you well know, Clayton, is, is this extremely complex system, ideology, system structure set of structures that that has really evolved in different contexts right and so evolved slightly differently and and we mistake it as being only about race but what whiteness is doing is it is doing the work of being a very sophisticated operation where in race intersects with other characteristics of difference, essentially to create vulnerability. So we're talking about, just as we spoke earlier, about the um, consonance of race, class, gender, and then multiple other characteristics of difference, faith, etc., age, um, sexuality. And and so we see whiteness working alongside neoliberalism and post-racialism to embed itself in social formations. It is essentially a divide and rule strategy. And divide and rule strategies do exactly that. They divide people to the point where we bicker about, is it race? Is it class? Is it? So it really has the impact and the imprint of um of dividing people making people feel very apart that we have to fight for our pieces of land and i'm interested in my lens and how i come to the problem and don't necessarily hear really hear how other people are impacted by systems of whiteness and in in this case by what becomes a a white mindfulness so so whiteness, of course, as I say, has has antecedents and has has not always been there in the current forms that it's taking today. But we understand that it's um, evolved in both the US and the UK and that it's premised on racialized systems of incarceration, the school to prison pipeline, wage gaps, skewed access to education, to mortgages and 
to jobs, etc. I mean, the list of harms caused by these systems are, are countless. Um, and, and I'm going to repeat that that race intersects with these other characteristics of difference in order to create vulnerabilities within the system. So, so this notion of atomization, you know, the notion of isolation is not new to the COVID era. This predates um, the ways in which um, neoliberalism evolved and works, of course, hand in glove with with whiteness to bring about um, systems in which Margaret Thatcher famously said, famously said, there is no society. There are individual men and women, only two genders. There are individual men and women, and there are families. And so we see the imprinting of certain med mental models and dominant narratives that become very, very normative and that kind of prop up the system of hyper-individualism. And so my, uh, a whiteness comes to reproduce itself through these mental models, and it seems normal, normal for certain spaces to be white. It almost goes unquestioned. So if we look at Ivy, Ivy League campuses at Oxbridge in the UK, they still disproportionately favor white schools and white-bodied students. Professors are predominantly white and male. Corporate boards, of course, in both countries are predominantly white and male. And when we look at certain professions like engineering, law and STEM, we see the same pattern, predominantly white and male. So, so yes, the face of whiteness becomes this face of, of racism, right? This face of particular mental models that are carried forth as dominant narratives and social norms. Um, but we want to always appreciate that we want to engage with the complexity of whiteness. Um, and part of what this, this means is that mindfulness uses the strategy of invisibilization. And in doing that, it protects and invisibilizes people in the system who have privilege and power. And at the same time, it also invisibilizes black people and queer people and working class people who commonly feel uncomfortable in white spaces. So it's quite, it's quite a system that is able to function at all of these levels to create all of these multiple vulnerabilities simultaneously and at the same time almost pit these different groupings against one another. So so there is, I mean, I don't like saying this, but there, there's complexity. I was going to say sophistication, but we'll say there is complexity um, in the system. And when we say that that whiteness invisibilizes privilege, it of course works alongside post-racialism as well. And, and it reduces racist incidences, including the murders of Stephen Lawrence, of Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, to episodes, right? It, it names these acts 
as episodes, as if they're simply aspects of society that white people and spaces have been and still are protected from. So not in in many boardrooms and, you know, possibly on many campuses, white people are not having to deal with the fallout of whiteness. They're not having to deal with the with these systemic features um, of whiteness. And so it's another way of perpetuating these inequalities within society. But what whiteness does on top of that is it makes these incidents episodic and it then says, you know, for anybody who is committing microaggressions or or um, acts of exclusions, go to colorblindness school and learn how to be colorblind. So you become an individual who is responsible for racist episodes and experiences. It's never the system. And so we are perpetuating Margaret Thatcher's notion of there is no such thing as society and systems. There, I mean, it's it's a very, um, in terms of mental models, something that lands really deeply within our psyches and within our being. Um, so it protects white supremacy. It's premised on growing inequalities and it fuels divisions around women's bodies, which we see not only in terms of unequal pay, but increasingly we're seeing around abortion laws. It creates divisions around gender and imposes binaries of an only male and female system with other genders presented as deviant. It maligns trans people who do not fit the norms. In this country, in the UK, um, where I'm at at the moment, there, there have been an increase of like 587% of anti-trans cases, hate crimes, um, since the start of the year. I'm, I'm, you know, and that statistic comes from a couple of months back. So it creates divisions around sexuality and, and then it jumps on the bandwagon as well when LGB, not the T, but when LGB becomes exotic or something to um, commercialize or capitalize on. And so it's why intersectionality is premised on critical race theory and it, it springs from legal frameworks, but it's why it's so threatening to, um, to the status quo that deliberately misrepresents it as if it's a threat to white men. You know, it doesn't present it as here's an opportunity to revisit how we understand power or how we understand um, society or relations in society. I I um, hope that that has been sufficient, Clayton. Yes, definitely. Thank you for going over the complexity of all that is included in whiteness and how it's a very political force and has very real material effects. I'd love to kind of continue talking about some of the pieces that you alluded to. And I'll just say to preface this a little, my first encounter with mindfulness or, you know, more accurately said white mindfulness was in therapeutic settings where, you know, there is uh, advocation for mindfulness in the sense of, as you mentioned, 
rationalism and scientifically based and evidence-based practices. And those are also very political processes. Um, so would you mind telling us about the mindfulness industry playing into this system and how it portrays mindfulness as apolitical? And what does this desire of being apolitical tell us about how it's able to be popularized here in the West? Thank you. Thank you, Clayton. It's um, it's such a rich question because, of course, there is no such thing as apolitical. And yet, and yet when people name things apolitical, of course, because it's presented by people in power who've done the research and the science, it can sound plausible. And I, I also want to come back to where you started this question when you spoke about meeting mindfulness in therapy and therapeutic contexts, I, I want to emphasize that, you know, mindfulness, white mindfulness, therapized mindfulness, pathologized mindfulness has, of course, helped many people. And I, I really want to not lose sight of that so that we don't repeat this kind of bifurcation which is how we land up with a white mindfulness in the first place. It's very easy to, to fall into the binaries and the polarization of, of um, you know, opposite or opposite views. And, and so I want to remind us and, and you know, I, I emphasize it in the book that it's, it's, it's important, I think, for us to always hold complexity and at the same time, to remember harms. And so, so speaking about the apolitical um, way in which mindfulness is presented, obviously, when it's presented this way, it appeals to all individuals, because remember, it's also pitching itself at the individual level, right? And so, presumably, it can reach a wider audience. And, and because it's so highly commercialized now, um, it believes that by growing and expanding, it can create a ripple effect of more people becoming mindfulness, mindful, and that, you know, the, the second Renaissance argument, um, which is a concept that, that John Kabat-Zinn, who is regarded as the grandfather of this form of mindfulness in the West, um, he, he spoke about the second renaissance as a almost a saving of humanity. You know, here's an opportunity for more and more people to become mindful. And as they become mindful, they'll be compassionate and they'll naturally, naturally be pro-justice. And there is research that shows that this is certainly not the case, especially when we are teaching mindfulness without teaching the harms that society is creating politically, you know, those political harms that that we discussed in terms of the regimes of, of whiteness. And so it continues to refuse any notion of, of politics, but the root of its of its apolitical stance, of course, goes hand in glove with a mindfulness that is ahistorical that's decontextualized that can be recontextualized as a healing modality and as 
a coping strategy and as a stress reduction program. And what it does in, in all of those ways is it emphasizes this common humanity. I, I named this earlier. We are we are common. Um, we are together in our commonness, right? We're we're common as a humanity. We have far more in common than we have that divides us. And what that, and I'm going to call it, um, maybe I'll say that, what that languaging does is it, of course, flattens difference and it emphasizes sameness. And so when mindfulness does that, it refuses any complexity. It refuses the political and it reinforces and and of course when people especially especially when people are supported by mindfulness and when they are able to use these coping strategies and resources of course it reinforces the notion that it's a good thing that mindfulness is apolitical because societies are so hyper individualized there isn't much of a thought about what about the people whom this form of mindfulness definitely cannot help because it's not changing structures and systems of discrimination and oppression. And so you almost see white mindfulness playing into the hands of um, entrenching and perpetuating the kinds of mental models, inequalities, divides that we are seeing um, within within these systems. Um, right, so, so we know, we know that it can project itself as appealing to any purpose, right? When mindfulness calls itself apolitical, we can claim that mindfulness can be used for social justice on the one hand, and that it can also be used to hone the skills of the mindful sniper on the other hand, right? So it, it plays almost with these contradictions. It can help cases of physical pain, suicidality, and depression, all of which it does. But at the same time, it's also used to calm people who've just been forcibly removed and who've lost their homes without helping them with changing the structures and the systems that create those losses in the first place. And so part of this apoliticalness of, of mindfulness is probably a reminder to all of us of just how many ecosystems shape us and how many, how many voices and mental models imprint themselves on us. Um, and we understand increasingly that those ecosystems that shape us are also sites where we can bring about um, change. They're the sites where we can form movements, etc. But we're we're understanding that this is the work, of course, of um, of Resma Menekam, of of Patricia Hill Collins, of Toni Morrison, Heidi Merza, Stuart Wall Bell Hooks, all of whom help us understand how we cannot escape the political structures that impinge themselves on us and that shape us. And, and perhaps finally, I'll say that this 
apolitical stance is, of course, perpetuates very much the practice of othering, right? When when we flatten difference and we deny politi- politics itself, never mind political complexity, um, we, we kind of assume that we're living outside of these systems that are shaping and forming um, politics and that are constructing our ideas and our belief systems. Um, that and it allows the it allows the bearers of this apolitical mindfulness to also present themselves as the bearers of universal knowledges um, without acknowledging the histories of the knowledges and the applications from which these teachings actually emanate. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. I do want to um, briefly highlight an example you mentioned and also discuss in the book um, that I've personally experienced. I used to work at a very popular company in the service industry. And you mentioned in the book that a lot of times mindfulness is used to um, kind of distract from the structural inequalities that are occurring and to kind of calm the, you know, workers or employees and such. And that was definitely the case with Mm -hmm. my experience working is that instead of addressing the barriers or the inequalities that were occurring in the company um, and the the direct result of which was added stress and burden and um, burnout for people and exhaustion, the um, response was basically, here, try this mindfulness app, and that will help you deal with the stresses of working here instead of actually changing the conditions. And I think that's a very important critique that you bring to the conversation. And I want to also talk about the irony that you mention with in the book that mindfulness is often taught as liberatory and as part of a long traditional history, yet the spaces in which these teachings occur are usually um, predominantly white, more affluent and more commercialized spaces. And I wanted to talk a little bit more of what you've alluded to in different parts of the interview so far, but how does this translate to how marginalized groups are often personally burdened with wellness, despite how much of the ills that marginalized groups experience are actually structural in nature instead of personal. Another really probing and brilliant question, Clayton. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, it's um, it's interesting that that whiteness seems to have this habit of in its process of divide and rule of really splitting people up right and as you name marginalizing people and then white mindfulness presenting itself as the solution to individuals feeling isolated depleted rundown so so the hyper individualism is i'm not saying that it's a deliberate manipulative ploy but it's certainly a ploy of whiteness and neoliberalism to 
to almost replicate. So it's like a layering of marginalization. You know, you're marginalized structurally. Um, you're you're really marginalized in your real life in terms of access to work and education, criminal justice, other forms of justice, um, food deserts, etc. Um, and when you fall ill, you are made to feel personally responsible because you're an individual. You know, there is no such thing as society. You're an individual who is made to feel personally responsible and made to feel a burden unto society for not being fit and healthy. And so unfortunately, white mindfulness becomes part of this almost... Um, not a good word, but almost an arsenal that is used to say, you know, mindfulness will help you cope and make you well. And so it's a very, um, it almost presents white mindfulness as quite sinister. But actually what, what I'm interested in is that white mindfulness evolves in systems that have this dominant narrative and therefore becomes part of the problem, you know. It becomes part of the problem rather than being a part of the solution to um, to these to these huge, huge, deep chasms and divides that we encounter in society. And and I want to speak just a little bit about um, this notion of the individual and this notion that we are made to feel that we end with the boundaries and the borders of our skins. But obviously, we know that we don't because we sense one another in so many ways. You know, the mycelial network is undoing this notion of division. And many, a lot of indigenous wisdom and um, global South wisdom doesn't see us as individuals. Obviously, globalization means that this, these forms of whiteness and neoliberalism have crept into many more societies. And I, 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 I want to be careful that to say that they've articulated with conditions in multiple societies that have made it possible for them to take root and to to um, prosper. But it, it of course, whiteness trains this notion. Of, of the collective and the community right out of us, right? We, we tend not to think any longer as communities and as collectives. And so when we have illness or dis-ease and it's pathologized and it's medicalized, of course, people speak about the medical industrial complex, that we tend to not turn to our communities as we may have done before for care. We tend not to take care of one another because we have to attend to the two jobs or the, you know, the many different things that we are balancing in life. Um, and and so when we when we look at the ways in which this highly commercialized mindfulness evolves, we we understand also that we're looking at at ways in which um, Toni Morrison speaks about the white gaze in terms of literature, the ways in which white mindfulness is actually written, it tends to be written for white audiences, right? It tends to, to not be written 
for marginalized people. And so we tend to this, I, I spoke earlier, I think about the one size fits all model. We tend to think that it's the same model that is going to be fine for marginalized people. And we even see them as quite needy, right? That, that you know, don't worry, here you are, here you go. And, and it, it repeats and it reinforces the notion that marginalized communities are only at the edges of society, that they don't have anything to offer society. And so, so of course, Bell Hooks challenges this with her oppositional gaze, where she's using cinema um, to understand how important it is to see the framing. You know, Morrison also speaks about the framing, the ways in which we are shaped. It's important to defy the ways in which these um, Said speaks about the colonial gaze and the Western gaze, the ways in which these gazes reinforce the notion of marginalization, which, as you say, is very real structurally, and we have to address those harms. When when white mindfulness doesn't even go there, it ends up, again, being part of, um, of the problem and part of the dominant narrative and the social norms. That, that continue to polarize society. Great. Thank you for that explanation and discussion. I really appreciate you diving into that critique in your book. And to go through some of the main sections of your book, in the first part of the book, you focus on the roots of exclusion and othering. And one of the key um, theories that you use is Orientalism. I was wondering if you could speak to how Orientalism and latent Orientalism shapes mental models of Western superiority and how this shows up in white mindfulness practices and the mindfulness industry. Again, again, you, um, you're hitting all the, the key points, Clayton. So thank you for the question. So, you know, Said's work on, Edward Said, I should say, Edward Said, his, his huge work on Orientalism and, and in fact the publication of the book named Orientalism where he is laying out how colony and empire have worked in the interests of the Wests and in the interest of superiority, that it, it really is a project that re-emphasizes this domination of um, a part of the world. And it's interesting in the ways in which he discusses Orientalism, where he says that the Orient is actually a construction of, of the West. It's a construction of the Occident, um, which needs the Oriental guidance, if you like, or knowledges around spirituality and culture. But it sets up the relationships in such a way so that it can hold its dominion and economic and political um, uh, colonization of, of these countries. So we mentioned, for instance, Burma before and the British um, colonization for that lengthy, you know, over a century. 1824 to 1948, a long period of time. But Sahid very cleverly is, is moving beyond um, invasion and occupation of people's lands 
the trade in goods and in people from these lands. So, so we want to remind ourselves that, you know, these are forms of what seeded slave trades, right? And slave trade routes. And, and he refers to something additional that goes back to mental models when he speaks about latent Orientalism. So this is about the shaping of mental models and the beliefs that buy into constructs like the East is idolatrous, that it is inferior, that it is cultural and emotional, um, that it does not have the prowess of the rational scientific mind of the West. And, and that rhetoric, of course, reinforces and legitimizes the practices of power over, right? The practices of engulfing, colonizing, etc. And it also then, because of latent Orientalism, it, it justifies the discrimination against people who are called foreigners. People are called foreigners, and it, it allows for the exploitation the extraction of value, the extraction of people, the extraction of knowledges. And so the system reproduces itself through creating this um, practice of othering. It's not merely a notion, it's a practice of othering. And when the exploitative West, which is extractive and which discriminates against people, is presented, it's presented as scientific and rational, right? And so it's presented as superior. It, it places a single kind of science, Western science, as the center of science. And it suggests that any other forms of knowledge creation, that indigenous, traditional, and other forms of ways of knowing and wisdom are not quite up to scratch. And so we have this, you know, uh, um, we have the amazing work of, of um, Ramon Grosfoguel, who speaks about the fact that the, the academic canon is based on knowledges um, produced by mostly white men in five countries because we've had this complete colonization of knowledges and, and suppression and, of course, elimination in some cases. And we're now very slowly seeing the resurgence of some indigenous knowledges, of some global South knowledges, of some queer knowledges. And so... so um, for elites in the Western world, in Western countries, these mental models are so foundational to systems that benefit at the expense of the global majority. They, um, they really show us the ways in which the, the, the situation is curated and designed so that it continues to feed and benefit the inequalities that, that the current forms of Western society are based upon. But it's equally important that with my critique, certainly, it's 
it's again important to recognize that that even Said's notion of Orientalism has been challenged by post-colonial scholars themselves, like Homi Baba, who says there isn't just a colonizer and an oppressed. You know, it's more complicated and complex than that. People who are repressed um, enter into resistance or defiance and sometimes innovate precisely at the margins, at the margins, which can become a place of refuge. So, so it's important for us to not simply see um, Orientalism as this dichotomy between a passive Orient and a, a kind of aggressive West. We want to understand the subtleties. And, and then there are other scholars like Judith Snot, uh, Snotgrass, I think is her surname, who, who speak about the importance of appreciating that knowledges were not only accumulated, and Saeed does make provision for this in, in his writing, were not only accumulated um, in, in malign ways, you know, in, in kind of oppressive, discriminatory ways. Even though there are often um, scholars from the East, and particularly in, in our case from Southeast Asia, who, who speak about the fact that their um, translations of the texts, the Pali texts, were sometimes dismissed by Western scholars as being contaminated, right? So it's very important that, that we, we, again, engage with the complexity and remember that um, mental models are operating under our very noses constantly. Um, and so, so we want to note that there are many genuine efforts within the West to understand, to bridge worlds, to bridge the East and West divide, to better understand, to show respect, to make apologies, etc. You know, it's not a kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation, as as can so easily be it can so easily be mistaken for. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation and really talking through the nuances of exclusion and othering that, um, you know, occur globally and in the West. And to kind of carry on through the book, part two looks at forms of mindfulness organizations and practices. You conducted research on three institutions that teach mindfulness. How do the power structures of these institutions reflect white dominance and gender inequalities of the industry? Leighton, thank you. It's um... You know, it's it's I suppose not unsurprising that that organizational formations within the mindfulness industry come to to mirror the social demographics in terms of power over decision making, policy formation, and the recirculation of of dominant thought. And when I say it's not surprising is because, of course, those are the ecosystems that are shaping these very organizations, right? But I suppose it's surprising in the sense that when one is in the mindfulness field, you almost don't expect it to mimic um, 
to mimic social patterns in quite the same way or as as um exactly as exactly as it does and so so we know you know from the research it's evident it's evident when one looks at um statistics at the hard data and you look at the pie charts it's evident that decision making resides largely with white men that teaching roles reside largely with white women um that there are very 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 few people of the global majority in positions of decision making we know that boards are changing both within the mindfulness world and in corporate sectors etc and they're changing because of the pressure and because of what's now called the bottom line right that that non-diverse organizations and communities don't perform as well um non-diverse yeah corporates and organizations i should say don't perform as well as as ones that are diverse and and maybe maybe moving with your question i should here take the opportunity to make an apology um within the book because when i've looked at the statistics and at mapping them i haven't complicated gender and so my statistics look at white populations and it looks at people of the global majority and it looks at men and women and so my apology is that this work really ought to become more complicated so that it doesn't look as if we are simply buying into the notion of a binary when it comes to gender you know i i think it's important increasingly that we want to see transgender people represented i even at one stage was thinking of putting a blank column next to each of my tables um to just note the trans people but in any case i'm 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 deviating somewhat so so i think there are big questions here about what people of the global majority which we understand is not a homogenous group or when they are included into these organizations what are they being included into and sara ahmed's work on diversity is of course um extremely helpful for us to understand how increased representation can amount to nothing more than performative diversity that diversity and inclusion often can put just a different face to business as usual that it doesn't necessarily mean that systems are changing that spaces are becoming um more inclusive that there's a greater sense of belonging for all um so so the area of of how these organizational demographics change is also one that asks questions of diversity and inclusion itself you know how do we bring about meaningful change how do we do diversity equity inclusion justice belonging plus how do we actually move this into a mode of systems change and then of course it's asking the question is it possible to change these systems that are so established and so entrenched and and um of course since we're talking about the second part of the book it's where i look at how pedagogies reinforce 
the very formations that we see. Pedagogies are mindfulness pedagogies and many other pedagogies now have become so corporatized and kind of comply with neoliberal needs for particular kinds of skills. You know, you you spoke about your workplace and how easily mindfulness can become about almost placating and almost getting people to be more productive um, and, and almost becoming a sedative in, in some cases. And so it's important to appreciate that when we're looking at uncritical pedagogies, we're not only saying that the pedagogies are uncritical, we're saying that they are designed to re-represent, to reproduce those mental models and social norms, that they are written, as, as Toni Morrison says, they are written for select audiences. They happen to be written for white middle-class audiences. And, and of course, these are big um, these are big topics and big discussions, um, but without recognizing that the mechanisms of the pedagogies produce curricula that are often based on the kind of savior trope notion, right? It often is a deficit education model that sees communities as needful, what Jennifer Cannon calls needful, rather than being these places of of rich um, knowledge production, of understandings, of um, offerings that people from the white middle class can learn a lot from, right? So, so we've got that problem in the pedagogies. And then, of course, we've got the audit culture, which and audit culture really comes from the car manufacturing industry, where we're metrifying everything, we're counting everything, we're producing measures for how well we are doing. And it's not simply about how many students have enrolled. It's not simply about um, are they leaving our, are we retaining them? It's about measuring, you know, kind of reducing the qualities within the practice of mindfulness to competencies that can be measured. And so they're, they're rich problems, you know. I mean, that's another way of saying big. They are big problems that need to be unpicked because when, when we are measuring something like do our students embody mindfulness, you know, I think the better question to ask is do they embody whiteness because they're being shaped by certain ecosystems that are functioning subliminally and latently while they are studying mindfulness. And some of the, you know, some of the more recent research shows that that notion that as we train more in mindfulness and compassion, we become people who are interested in social justice is actually almost the opposite of what is happening, you know that actually people are not attuned to social justice issues at all, that we are simply repli replicating the current models. I'll, I'll stop there, Clayton. I hope that that is sufficient. Yes, definitely. I appreciate you going through that. And the portion on audit cultures was one of my favorites of the book, surprisingly. I wasn't expecting your um, explanation of that, but it was really illuminating to read about how you 
analyze audit culture and how, you know, these standard processes that we take for granted are also involved in the secularization and orientalism and neoliberalism and deracination of practices like mindfulness just because we're assigning metrics to them and trying to produce evidence-based models and such. Um, to continue along, part three of your book is called Embodying Justice, Changing Worlds. And this was a very insightful piece where you dive into a lot of the various movements and also um, aspects of ways people have used mindfulness to really, um, as you say, embody justice and change the world. Um, so one of your major themes and recurring themes throughout the book is Audre Lorde's quote, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. Would you be able to talk about how and why it was such an important concept in your analysis of white mindfulness? And going off of that, would you be able to share some of the movements being made towards mindfulness that's involved in embodied liberation and social justice, or, you know, as you could say, aren't utilizing the master's tools. Mm. Again, thank you for the question, Clayton. And and you are also reminding me, you asked me earlier on about secular mindfulness, which I didn't answer at the time, but but you obviously have understood it as I intended and, and as I speak about in the book, that secular mindfulness is kind of a way of saying this is not Buddhist on the one hand, but then kind of moving towards. So it's it's kind of grappling with, with the uneven ground. But the point that Talal Assad makes is that all secularization processes are political processes. There are choices made about what stays and what goes, you know, it's, it's Richard King talks about the security police, you know, it's like you, you receive um, Buddhism or mindfulness at the borders, and you throw out certain things and say, no, 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 and you're left maybe with two items of clothing, and this is what becomes the practice. So, so of course, I'm, 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 I'm making it extreme here. But, but as you've noted, that all of those acts are acts of political acts and often acts of exclusion. So to get to Audre Lorde, who, who of course um, continues to guide so much thinking around systems change and decolonization work, she really helps us appreciate different conditions in different parts of the world. And her master's tool quote, her master's tools quote, I should say, does not end with this question around whether we can end power over methodologies by locking horns with systems themselves. In other words, are our energies well spent by trying to change systems from the inside? Her work is, is often interpreted to mean that we need our own understandings of power, of care, of kindness, of our own spaces to imagine what societies built on fairness could look like, you know? So, so her invitation is very much saying in that quote, when we drop into ourselves and we look more carefully at these faces of um, the mental models we wear, 
that we wear as accessories. It's really important for us to see whose faces they bear, you know. So I, I really appreciate the richness of the quote that she's asking us to unpack so many things. And it's we often only focus on the master's tools part and assume that she's meaning don't enter the master's house because it will never be the pathway of liberation. And, and of course, Audrey Lord is, is um, no, no um, a, a superficial scholar. Her, her work is, is um, deep and she embraces global South and indigenous and queer knowledges that, that are often marginalized in, in dominant discourses. So with her questioning, I think she's opening up um, whether it's possible to enter the master's house, whether we can change systems sufficiently to bend them to the purpose of social justice, right? So that that societies that we can actually start correcting racialized, gendered, transsexist, transphobic, sexist, faith-based harms and, and injustices. Is it possible that from the inside we can start attending to legislation or um, policy that actually, or maybe even training, right? I mean, this is one of the roles of the diversity officer. Can we attend to training that actually really gets people to think differently, to question values and belief systems? So so I think she's opening up that, that question for us. Um, and and what she's speaking about is is really encouraging movement building so that so that we're not simply talking about shall I or shan't I. She's really saying we need movements, and it's possible that when there's a movement, when we enter organizations, it becomes easier for organizations to change in the wake of the changes that movements are creating. Right. So so like we saw with the BLM movement and the year of reckoning with race, many DEI spaces were opened up. Currently, we're seeing many of them are shrinking. You know, there's a shrinkage in DEI provision. So so she's talking about this dynamic, the social dynamic of being wise and thoughtful in our imaginations about how we bring about a different a different world. And. To name just a few of of the um, of the ways in which we are developing new ways of thinking, there are coalitions forming that are increasingly based on what you named embodied justice. Um, we know about the East Bay Meditation Center, which actually formed as the East Bay Dharma Center as early as two thousand and one. And when we look at um, Nalika Gajawira's work, she notes that as Buddhism and meditation spaces evolved in the West, and her work is only in the US, many identity groups broke off and formed themselves separately anyway as identity groups, just to have some breathing space from these predominantly white middle-class spaces. So the East Bay Meditation Center responded to that call really early on. 2001 is really early on providing um, 
a predominant working in Oakland, a predominantly black community, providing spaces not only for people from the global majority, but for LGBT people, for people working with pain, for people working with disabilities, all kinds of groups evolved under that auspices to give people the space of being able to just have some release of that holding when one is in when one is tense in in very unfamiliar spaces in which you feel that you don't belong you know those feelings of shrinkage and the feelings of of being small and and therefore playing small because of the design of the system so the east bay meditation system is based on a gift economy model i always find that so amazing so it's not simply about providing spaces it's a gift economy model and it offers teachings along these lines of of identity groups and and as i say was deliberate in terms of its geography and how it wished to make the teachings far more available and accessible so that the teachings themselves could be discussed from the points of view of these identity groups right what has happened in white mindfulness spaces and i think um gajawira speaks about this is that black mindfulness practitioners are told you know your practice ain't good enough if you're having problems with identity you better practice harder i mean that is the it's a very ugly face of it's a very ugly face of mindfulness but it's there it's there and so we need to be aware that we can't paint um our mindfulness spaces as just happening to be um structurally replicating the larger system of whiteness the, these practices of of course must also be addressed and then we have i've spoken about the um, buddhist global relief organizations which is fundamentally a pro justice model and they also develop co-created programs with communities and are interested in liberation and they they work in all kinds of um communities and with all kinds of projects so it does not only have to be around food it can be around education it can be around um building gardens it's it's whatever the community has an interest in in providing and then we've seen more recently with the publication in 2015 of um radical dharma by Reverend Angel Kyodo Williams Lama Rod Owens and and Dr Yasmin Sayadullah we've seen the um kind of flourishing of the radical dharma movement and and again this work is based on this notion of we are not waiting for justice to be handed to us we are actually cultivating liberation which brings us almost full circle back to um you know very early on in the book i speak about i i quote steve biko who is a fallen south african hero who was killed by the apartheid regime who says if you want to oppress a people oppress their minds and so the mental models piece in all of this work is critical and crucial and so the embodied justice piece is saying we cannot only work on the inside we cannot only work on the outside 
justice means love in action. We have to be working on all fronts. And in the book, I emphasize that interstitial layer of social norms and dominant narratives, because it's it's a layer that is seldom interrogated. And it's it's usually spoken of as culture without us really diving into what are the mental models that I am sponsoring that might still resonate with colonial um, mentalities and practices. So this process of embodied justice is also about decolonizing ourselves and working within communities to do that process so that it's not a hyper-individualized model. Um, and so these, these kind of newish formations are marking a new era that, again, is about movement building and that is not dependent on the infrastructures or the mechanisms or the facilities of white mindfulness. They're, they're lesser known now, but they are growing and expanding and serving growing populations of change makers and movements and and then there are smaller outfits I'll, I'll just make this final point there are smaller outfits and developments that are working within the frame of white mindfulness within the field and still doing the good works of reframing um, the curriculum so developing co-created curricula that address people of the global majority the urban um, foundation of mindfulness or the Urban Mindfulness Foundation, has their own um, mindfulness-based inclusion training, which they offer to people of the global majority to provide a space that also is a space for conversation and action around how do we transform things. The ULEX project has worked for many years now serving um, social justice activists so that they can be supported in terms of appropriate care models and there are many more shining lights that are navigating the implications of pedagogy and change i think there's a recent paper that um, speaks about mindfulness for our times but those latter ones that i've named function within the system of white mindfulness and so don't have the freedoms that the other organizations have in terms of really creating um using imagination to just build so differently yeah. And to create inclusive futures, Clayton, inclusive futures. Yes. <laughs> so important. So thank you so much. This has been a very enriching conversation. And obviously, we've barely even scratched the surface of this brilliant book that you wrote. I wanted to see before we wrap up, if there's any topics or specific areas that you would love to discuss that we haven't hit on yet. Thank you for that invitation, Clayton. I, I'm aware that the book is, um, it, it has a lot in it. I'm aware that it's quite, it's quite dense. And I, I wanted to name just two chapters that, that um, are curious about temporality and about pain and emotion and that really start bringing to the foreground queer knowledges and indigenous knowledges um, and global south knowledges in ways in which we queer our notions of temporality i think it's really important for us i'd like to work more on those 
chapters and bringing them out, it's really important for us to grapple with those almost foundational tenets that we just assume, oh, you know, there's only one way of seeing this in the world. And I think that's the case also with emotionality and pain, precisely because of this tendency of white mindfulness to flatten difference and to to um, highlight sameness rather than dealing with complexities. I think it would be really good um, at another time to to explore those in greater depth um, so that they become bigger conversations, not only within the space of of mindfulness, you know, just like whiteness should be a conversation across society, not only within the field of mindfulness. So uh, those are the two that I'd name. Thank you so much for the question. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate that because as you mentioned, John Kabat-Zinn um, had this definition of mindfulness that I've heard plenty of times before. And you mentioned in the book that mindfulness is awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, and those conversations about temporality and feeling and emotion are so important if we're going to talk about disrupting white mindfulness and how we think about and experience those aspects of mindfulness. So, Dr. Carl, so this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining with me and talking about your new book and sharing it with all of us. I really appreciated this chance to talk with you. Leighton, my huge gratitude to you. I've so enjoyed the conversation as well, and I'm I'm really appreciative of the care that you've taken with the structure and the questions to allow us to explore together. So many, many thanks to you and to the New Books Network as well.